I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. And this morning we are beginning chapter 7. Chapter 7. Amazingly, the speaker, uh, Stephen, the one who was preaching, managed to summarize 1,200 years or so of Jewish history in about 52 verses. So we're going to be here for a while. It's nervous laughter. Is he kidding? So the question is, how in the world did he do that? And more importantly, why did he do this? I'm not going to read the passage because it's quite long, but this morning we're covering verses 2 through 16. Verses 2 through 16. So I'm going to remind you of the context as we enter into our passage. Context, as you know, is king, right? If you want to understand anything, you need to know the context. It is the context that which determines the meaning of what Stephen is about to tell us in Acts chapter 7. And believe me, Stephen does have a point, a very clear, a life-changing point. He's not rambling on and on without a specific objective, To find out what that objective is, we need to look at the context. So first, let me give you the general context, which comes from the one verse that set the mood for the entire book of Acts. What would that be? Chapter 1, verse... You don't have the book of Acts memorized? Verse 8. Verse 8. What did we hear then? But you will receive power, and you will be... My witnesses, let me ask you this, who spoke those words? Well, the risen Jesus, right before his ascension into heaven. Whose witnesses were they supposed to be? Easy question, right? Jesus. This is the core element of the book of Acts. The disciples were sent to testify or to speak about the Lord Jesus in the power of the Spirit. That, my friends, was the central burden of their ministry. Preach Christ. Preach Christ. This being the case, listen to this, we have no reason to believe that Stephen was doing anything other than what? Preaching Christ. He was preaching Christ. We have no reason to believe anything other than that. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is testifying about Jesus and he was being led by the Spirit. Stephen has not lost sight of his calling. The the story is not out of joint with the rest of the book since the same spirit that Jesus sent is now empowering Stephen. Now let's remember now the immediate context. We looked at the general context. Now let's look at the immediate context which comes from chapter 6, verses 13 and 14. There were false charges brought up against Stephen. More specifically, the charges were, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, meaning what? The temple, right? And the law. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Notice this subtlety in the charges brought against Stephen. Listen to this. To be For Jesus is to be against the Jewish religion. That is the charge. That is the charge. 
chapter 7 is how Stephen will defend himself. And so now the next question is, what was Stephen's approach to his defense? How did he approach the subject? One word, covenantalism. Covenantalism. Within the Reformed tradition, the concept of covenants has been critical. By that I mean this, central to the biblical storyline is the fact that God, of his own perfect and good will, enters into covenants with his chosen people. He commits himself to humans, and in return, he asks them to commit themselves to him. And even though there is much to say about the covenants, please consider with me what we see in Acts chapter 7. Stephen, in his defense of the message he preached, he mentioned three covenant heads of the people of Israel. These are Abraham, who's next? Moses, and finally, David. Abraham, Moses, David. Those three names are very strong pillars within Old Testament history. The question we are trying to answer is as follows. Why did Stephen see the need to speak of these men and the circumstances associated with them in response to the charges brought up against him? Or more specifically, if Stephen was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and was he? Yes. If Stephen was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we know that he was, why did he go into Old Testament history? Here's why. Stephen saw what his Jewish audience missed. He saw that Abraham, Moses, and David were all about one and the same story. In other words, Abraham, Moses, and David belonged to a greater story, namely the story of how God was going to redeem the world, the entire world, in and through his son, Jesus Christ. In that sense, the Abrahamic era, the Mosaic era, and the Davidic era were not disconnected eras, but they were all pointing forward to something far greater than themselves. Their stories, important as they were and are in their own right, were all subservient to a greater and better story, the story of Jesus, the Savior of the world. And through these historical covenants, God was preparing the way for the greater covenant, meaning the new, the new covenant in Christ Jesus. So here's the order in which Stephen presented his defense of the gospel. Remember, he's defending the gospel. He draws a line from Abraham the patriarch through Moses the deliverer to David the king, all of which leads to verse 52 of chapter 7, namely, Jesus the righteous one. Abraham the patriarch, Moses the deliverer, David the king, leading up to the climax of it all, Jesus the righteous one. Don't miss, miss the following. At the center of all of this stands one single glorious reality. God dwelling with his 
people. Think of it this way. Think of it this way. God created the world, and in particular, the Garden of Eden, in order to have communion with his image bearers. God wanted to dwell in the midst of his creatures. But what happened? Eve. Sorry, ladies. But Adam was, was, was responsible. We know that for sure. Sin created a separation between God and his people. Adam and Eve immediately sought to hide themselves from God rather than seek after him. And that's always the consequence of sin. The rest of the story in the Old Testament is about God revealing how he is going to make a way for sinners to be reconciled to him. Why? Because God has always wanted to dwell with his people through covenants. Through covenants, this plan of reconciliation is progressively revealed. Or we could put it this way. If it is proper to say that biblical revelation is essentially progressive, shedding greater and greater light the closer you move into the new covenant, then we could conclude that the entire force of this progressive revelation is pushing forward toward one incredible, altogether glorious end. What is the end of all of human history? Well, consider this. If Genesis 3, the first book of the Bible, leaves us with a sense of separation between God and man, consider how the story ends. Consider how the story ends in the last book of the Bible, Revelation 21, verse 3. Listen to these words. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with who? With man. He, meaning God, will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. The climax, the climax of all of history, God dwelling with man. But here's the shocker. Here's the shocker. In order, in order for God to do that, God became a man. In order for God to dwell with man, he himself became a man. And that man is now exalted. Right now, that man is exalted in the heavens, having all authority over all things. His name is Jesus. And Stephen will soon see that glorified man with his own eyes. But everything we read prior to that glorious ending we see in Revelation 21, everything from Genesis onward is God showing us how he will remove the stain of sin, the stain of darkness, the stain of death in order to dwell with his people. He wants to dwell with us. He wants to dwell with us. And at the very heart of this stands not a temple or a tabernacle or an ethnic people, but Jesus the only begotten Son of God and Son of Man. And this, my brothers and sisters, is the burden of Stephen's message to show the historical steps taken to get to Jesus, the righteous one, the Christ. Now, I would like to work this out by looking at the story itself. The story, God with Abraham. God with Abraham. This is where Stephen chose to begin 
Because the heart of the accusations against them had to do with what? Stephen's understanding of his own history. They are accusing him of being an enemy of Moses, an enemy of the law, an enemy of the temple, and an enemy of God himself. So Stephen is going to tell them what they already know. But more importantly, he is going to show them that he is reading the exact same what? Old Testament. Is the exact same Old Testament. And by doing so, he is proving himself not only knowledgeable, knowledgeable of their history, but also capable of interpreting their history properly as the Spirit of God intended it, which some, something is, is something his audience failed to do. Remember how Luke presented Stephen in chapter 6, verse 5? Stephen was full of the Spirit. So, first step, the Abrahamic calling. The Abrahamic calling. What is this calling? Walk before me. Walk before me. The God of glory appeared to Abraham, the Bible says. Why did God appear to Abraham? He had a special calling for Abraham. Even though Stephen quotes from Genesis 12, verse 1, the essence of the Abrahamic call really shows in Genesis 17, verse 1, where God once again appeared to Abraham and said this to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. What was God's call upon Abraham? The calling was this, you're going to be set apart. You are going to be set apart as one Old Testament scholars said, the Hebrew expression, walk before me, carries the idea of being an emissary or representative. Therefore, Abraham, along with his descendants, were being called to show, listen, don't miss this, very important, they were being called to show the rest of the nations what it meant to live in a right relationship with the true God. Was there any other nation in the world at that time that knew how to relate properly to God? It was Abraham. It was only Abraham. In connection to this, it was the great American theologian, Jonathan Edwards, who spoke of Abraham's calling as a new thing. What he meant was this. The first time the world became corrupted by sin, what did God do? He destroyed it through a flood, but saved one family in the ark, namely Noah's family. Why? To preserve a people from which the seed of Eve would come. Now, by the time Abraham shows up, the world is just as corrupted with sin. But this time, instead of flooding the world, God chose one man out of the world, namely Abraham, and called him to live his life distinct from the world. After all, it was from Abraham's family that the Messiah would come. Thus, it was necessary for Abraham and his family to be separate. Therefore, the calling of Abraham was just another step in God's plan of worldwide redemption. Why was he called to Canaan? We'll get there in a moment. For now, pay close attention to the words in verse 2 of Acts 7. 
the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Notice briefly, way before there was a temple, way before there was a temple or even a tabernacle, God was already coming down to his chosen people. Don't miss that great detail. And speaking of glory, let me ask you this. What comes to mind when you think of God's glory or the appearing of God's glory? Well, if, if, you, would have, if you were a Jewish person and your mind was steeped in Old Testament scripture, you would have known that God's glory was normally associated with what? A lot of whispering. The temple. The temple. As Alan Thompson says in his book, The Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus, very good book, by the way, the references in which God's glory is spoken of as filling the temple or appearing or coming down on the temple are plenty. Why does that matter? Once again, don't forget the immediate context. What was the charge? Stephen, you are an enemy of what? Of the temple. So it is as though Stephen were saying, no, I am not an enemy of the temple. In fact, you are the ones missing the fact that God's glory had already appeared to his people prior to what? The temple. The glory of God was always a manifestation of God's presence among his chosen people. Interesting also to note the following detail. Look in your Bibles. The story begins with a reference to the God of glory appearing to Abraham. And how does it end? Well, toward the end of the story, in verse 55, Stephen sees what? The glory of God. Thus, these two references to the glory of God function as bookends. But more importantly, they confirm a very important truth. That the God of Stephen is the God of Abraham. The God of Stephen is the God of Abraham. And that the same God who was faithful to Abraham would be faithful to Stephen, even in the moment of death. But that is not the only thing Stephen and Abraham have in common. It is not only that they served the same God, but they also had the same faith, which is our second point, the Abrahamic example, faith. The Abrahamic example, faith. Verse 4 then he, meaning Abraham, went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. In Acts chapter 6, verse 5, the Bible describes Stephen as a man full of faith. So was Abraham. In fact, Abraham is said to be the father of those who are of the faith. Paul made that very clear in Romans 4, 11. Abraham heard the word of God, believed the word of God, and walked according to the word of God. God said to Abraham, leave what you know and go to a place you don't know, but that I will give to you. Abraham believed and went. Abraham believed and went. That is faith. As I have said before, faith is believing God's word in order to live according to God's word. But can you see what Luke is doing as he recounts these events? And can you see what Stephen is doing as he speaks? Both Luke the writer and Stephen the preacher together are sending a very powerful message. 
Do you see what that message is? What do we know so far? Both Stephen and Abraham worshipped a different God or the same God? The same God. Moreover, both Stephen and Abraham shared the same faith. What do we conclude? Well, Christianity, this movement that began with the Lord Jesus and is now spreading through the preaching of the disciples, stands in wonderful continuity with the religion of Abraham. Stephen is not preaching a different God. Neither is he calling for a different type of faith. There is one difference, however. The difference is simply this, that the revelation is now much, much greater and better than what Abraham had. Abraham lived in the age of promise. Stephen lived in the age of fulfillment. And so do we. In Hebrews 11, 8, we read, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. So too, by faith, Stephen stood before this hostile council and entrusted his words and even his own life to the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, the one who died to secure Stephen's forgiveness and his eternal life. So do you believe in the Christ? Let us see the Abrahamic promise. The Abrahamic promise. What was the promise? Land. Verses 5 through 7. Yet... He gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me. In this place. Did you notice that ending? They shall come out of that land and worship me in this place. What was the purpose of God giving Abraham and his offspring the land? One word. Worship. Worship. Or shall we say proper worship. Worship according to God's revelation. God wants the worship of his people his chosen ones. Once again, the theme runs throughout the entire narrative. Through Abraham, listen, here we're going to make a connection, very important connection. Through Abraham, God was separating a people for himself. Sounds familiar? The Bible says in Titus chapter 2, verse 14, that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Brothers and sisters, this has always been the plan, even from Abraham and his seed, to call a people out of the world so that they may reflect God's character to the nations. Is that not the very purpose of the church? Now, don't believe me. Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter. Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. I believe this is, uh, I don't know what page this is in the Blue Bibles. I'm not going to try to guess. There are a lot of pages in there. 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Listen to how, God, how Peter speaks to his audience. But you are a chosen race. 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He could have said this to Abraham. And God says this to us. It is one story, my friends. It is one wonderful story. A people set apart for the glory of God. To proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Of course, Abraham did not get to inherit this land in his lifetime. But the promise was for him and his descendants. Under Joshua, they did enter and conquered most of the land, but not without first enduring about 400 or more years of slavery in Egypt. But before we get there, and keeping with the theme of proper worship, I want to draw your attention to the very strategic location of the land of Canaan. As one scholar put it, Canaan was a main route of commerce and the central point of connection between Egypt on the west and Assyria and Babylon on the east. Many people would have traveled through this land. Why did God place his people there? The purpose, once again, was for them to show forth the excellencies of the one who called them. As people from other nations traveled through Canaan, Israel was to be a light to them by showing them what true worship of the true God looked like. They were not meant to keep it a secret, but to live by faith under the rule of God to show that there is a God in heaven who is not like the idols of the nations. Israel was to represent God in this very strategic piece of land. Let me ask you this, did they? Did they successfully represent God? Well, the answer is no. They failed. Their objective, the very purpose of their existence was to represent God to the nations. They failed. But there is one who came. Born of a woman. Born under the law. Who did show us the Father. And it's not Israel. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. Not only was Abraham given a land in which they were to live separate, distinct lives to the glory of God, but Abraham was also given a covenant, which came with a sign, a very significant covenant with a very significant sign, which is letter D in your notes. The Abrahamic covenant, circumcision, circumcision. Verse 8, and he, meaning God, gave him, Abraham, the covenant of circumcision. Why in the world circumcision? Why couldn't it be something a little more pleasant? Well, don't miss this. Circumcision was always pointing toward a spiritual reality. It was never an end in and of itself. Hence the words in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Circumcision of the flesh stood as a very painful and bloody illustration of the depths of human depravity. Depravity reaches into the very moment of conception. I know this is very uncomfortable to talk about, right? 
the depths of human depravity. What did David say in Psalm 51, verse 5? Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. It is through the very means of procreation, through the very means of procreation that sin spreads to all men, which means that our fallenness is inescapable and impossible to remove through anything we can do. There's nothing we can do. Here's the bad news. Sinners only produce more sinners. Ever wonder why your children can give you so much headache and heartache? Well, it is because they came from you. You gave it to them. Sin spreads from generation to generation, and it is through the act of procreation. Children are conceived in sin. The spread of sin is unstoppable unless, of course, God intervenes. And that is precisely what the Bible says God would do, as we heard in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. Physical circumcision was given as a sign not only to set Abraham and his descendants apart as belonging to God and of the depths of human depravity, but also to say this, a better, a greater, a deeper circumcision is coming, the circumcision of your hearts. How did God do that? Well, if sin spreads through procreation, then God brought about salvation through the one who knew no sin. Through the one who was conceived in Mary's womb, but not by Joseph, but by the Holy Spirit. Jesus of Nazareth, the righteous one, as Stephen will call him in verse 52. And as we will discover... If you stick around, you will, you will find out that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is the fulfillment of everything Stephen said in chapter 7. How is that the case? We will answer that important question in due time. For now, consider next the Abrahamic preservation. The Abrahamic preservation. Joseph. Joseph. Verses 9 through 16. The story of Joseph is a story filled with much drama. His brothers, meaning the descendants of Abraham, became jealous of Joseph. Jealousy seems to have been a very prominent vice within Israel from the beginning. They were jealous of the apostles as well. Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery. But more importantly is what we read in verses 9 and 10. Notice that God was with Joseph, even in the dungeon. Delivered him out of his afflictions, gave him favor with Pharaoh, and made him ruler over Egypt. The rest of those verses recount how these events were the reason Abraham's descendants ended up in Egypt. And most of you would know that story. But why is this here? Why is that story here? I believe is there to show us God's faithfulness to his covenant with Abraham and his providence over all of history. Abraham's descendants did not become slaves uh, or did become slaves of the Egyptians just as God said they would. It was all providential. Thankfully, that was not the end of the story. Through Joseph, 
God preserved Abraham's descendants so that the promise could be fulfilled, as we will see next Sunday, beginning in verse 17. Interestingly, this section of the story ends in verse 16 with a reference to the burial place that Abraham purchased in Shechem, which was literally the only piece of property he had in Canaan. It stands there as a very small preview of what was coming. God was staking his claim on the land, and he did so through Abraham. So that's the story. We have reached the end of this section in verse 16. There's much more left. But the question in our minds is this, what's the point? What's the point? Remember how I said context is king? This is Stephen responding to the charges of chapter 6, verse 13 and 14. In light of that context, here's the point of what Stephen is saying. God is committed to his covenant people. God is committed to his covenant people, not to a geographical location or a physical structure. Note this amazing truth. Note this amazing truth. Eventually, God came to identify himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Why? Because he is the God of a people. And with them, he wants to dwell. The story of Abraham and his descendants reminds us that God's presence was always with them, guiding, protecting, fulfilling what was promised. God is not confined to a geographical point. Rather, God is committed to his people. Critical point, especially in light of verses 48 through 50 and 52. And we'll get there in a few weeks. Hopefully this will become clear as we navigate the rest of the speech. So I want to leave you with a few questions. And we will end. First question, how does God relate to humanity? How does God relate to humanity? Here's the answer. Covenant heads. Covenant heads. What I mean is this, and Abraham is a wonderful illustration. If you wanted to benefit from what God promised Abraham, what did you need? Well, you needed to be in association with who? With Abraham. With Abraham. In this case, you needed to be a descendant of Abraham. Being a descendant of Abraham meant you had access to the blessings promised to whom? It's an easy question, right? To Abraham, right? But you needed to be under Abraham. In other words, God dealt with Israel on the basis of his covenant faithfulness to one man. You know it, Abraham. In fact, Abraham's name won't be forgotten. Even as we enter into the story of Moses, God never abandoned his people because he was committed and faithful to, once again, this one man, Abraham. In that sense, Abraham was the covenant head of Israel. 
God was faithful to Israel because he was faithful to his covenant with Abraham. The blessings of the Abrahamic promise only reached those who were in association with Abraham because the promises were made to him. Circumcision was given to those who came from Abraham, and they were considered separate unto the Lord. Well, believe it or not, things have not changed. God still relates to humanity through covenant heads. And if you will come to God in a proper, reconciled relationship, then there is only one way for you to do that. Which leads us to the second question. Where does God relate to humanity? I know it's it's kind of an interesting way to put it. Where does God relate to humanity? The answer is Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus. Clearly, as the example of Abraham and his family has shown, God does not need a physical structure or a temple to be with his people. So when I ask where, I don't mean a temple, but a person. There's only one in whom we have access to God, namely Christ. Now, remember what I said. If you wanted the Abrahamic blessings, you needed to be in association with Abraham. Very good. Very good. Listen to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with how many blessings? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Those under the headship of Abraham came from him through birth. Those who are under the headship of Jesus must be born again. Must be born again. You want the blessings that belong to Christ? Then you must be born again. And just like Abraham, you too must believe in Christ Jesus. No Christ, no blessing. It is only through Christ that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God calls you to faith. And if you are in Christ, here's the good news. If you are in Christ through faith in his name, then God is with you. God is with you. No greater news. No greater news, my friend. On September 14th, 1629, Pastor Samuel Rutherford, he wrote a letter to a married couple who was experiencing very significant changes in their lives. They Uh, They they were having to uproot their entire families and move somewhere else, losing friends in the process. And so he wrote them a letter, very beautiful letter. In fact, the letters of Samuel Rutherford have been compiled in a book, and I would strongly recommend that book to you. In this particular letter, he gave them encouragement. And in one particular section, he said these very simple words. Go Wheresoever you will, if the Lord goes with you, you are at home. If the Lord goes with you, you are at home. Some of you have experienced change. Some of you are experiencing change. Some of you will experience change. Things not always remain the same. Sometimes change is very difficult. Sometimes change is even painful. 
Relationships change. Routines change. Jobs change. Environments change. People change. Circumstances change. Health changes. Life in this world is a life in constant change. But if we learn anything from the story of Abraham and his descendants is this. Home is wherever the Lord is. And if you are in Christ, then the Lord is always with you. The Lord is always with you. Therefore, we are always at home. Although, although not fully yet. Undeniably, God was present with his people way before the temple was built. And even when the temple was finally built, it came with a massive qualification, as we will learn in verses 48 through 50. God is not confined, and he will not be confined to a geographical place or a physical structure. But God is committed to a people. His presence goes with them, always. It seems clear to me that Stephen's sermon is mainly about this. Jesus is the key that unlocks the entire Old Testament scriptures. If you miss him, you miss everything. The charges were about Moses, God, the law, the temple, and the customs. So the entire speech of Acts 7 is built around this one central truth. To preach Jesus of Nazareth is to make sense of what the Old Testament scriptures actually taught. If you don't understand the Old Testament scriptures through the lenses of Christ, you won't understand them, period. And the Jewish audience missed it. They missed it. This will become very clear next week. And final, third question, why does God relate to humanity? We were singing about this just a moment ago, amazing grace. Amazing grace. If you uh, pay attention, this is something that always has caught our attention when we do family worship or, or anything else as a family. We're always um, amazed at the fact that the Bible does not hide the sometimes evil that was found in the people he used. Abraham had many, many mistakes. He did many things wrong. Why did God appear to Abraham? God appeared to Abraham, not because of Abraham, but because he is good. Which reminds us of the very essence of grace. Grace is God coming down to us. Not us lifting ourselves up, up to him. And this God did in his son the Lord Jesus Christ. He came down, became a man, lived a perfect life of obedience, died upon a cross for sinners, was buried in a tomb, and rose from the dead on the third day. God came down because salvation is all of grace from beginning to end. This is why the invitation is always so simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Let us pray together. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your help in ages past, as we will be singing in just a few moments. Thank you for the 
beautiful, wonderful unity of the story of redemption. Thank you for calling Abraham with all his sin, with all his shortcomings. You called him out of the land of Ur and into the land of Canaan because you are good. And just like you call the people of Israel to be set apart, you're calling us to do the same. But this time we do so because Christ has paid the price for our sins, shed his blood, and rose again. And now by the power and the strength of your spirit, lead us on, Lord. Lead us on so that everyone who comes by this church, they may see what it looks like to be in a right relationship with you. Help us to be a light into this world and the salt. But we can only do so by your grace. And all these things we pray in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen.